0: If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 6. If you need a Bible, grab one of these blue Bibles. They're all throughout the room. You can turn to page 964. Uh, if you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Justin. I get to be the pastor here. We're going through the Lord's Prayer, so if you wouldn't mind, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. Uh, we're going to be focusing on verse 12, and then Jesus' comments on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6:14 and 15. Uh, We'll start around verse 9, but we're really going to talk about what it means for us to forgive our uh, debtors and for us to be forgiven. With that in mind, friend, let's hear the word of the Lord to us. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's word out in front of them. Jesus said, "'Pray then like this, "'Our Father in heaven, "'Hallowed be your name. "'Your kingdom come, "'Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. "'Give us this day our daily bread.'" Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God remains forever. And this is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open together as we pray. Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would give me the very words and the message of Jesus Christ and his gospel of forgiveness. Father, thank you that on the cross you upheld justice and mercy. Father, would we be humbled by it and Lord, would today be the day of salvation In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so i got to get a couple of controversies out of the way. As many of you have wondered, possibly for years, you may know that at our church we pray, forgive us our trespasses. We say debts! And some of you are thinking, why don't we say trespasses? So some of you have been asking me all about the Lord's Prayer over the last couple of weeks, and you've wondered, uh, raise your hand if you grew up saying, forgive us our trespasses. Now, raise your hand if you said debts. Okay, so uh, there's this thing called the Mandela Effect. Have you ever heard about it? It's this idea that we have all these like, false memories, like there's never been a, a peanut butter brand called Jiffy before, and there's you know, ideas like uh, the Fruit of the Loom logo is supposed to have a cornucopia behind it. turns out that's never had a cornucopia in the Fruit of the Loom logo. So we have all these like crazy memories. Okay, so I'm going to kind of blow your mind right now, and it's going to sound like I'm, I'm like rewriting your history, but there is no English translation of the Lord's Prayer that ever includes the word trespasses in the Bible. You can go to the King James, you can go to the New King James, you can go to the NIV, you can go to the ESV, you can go to any modern, even the Old English, the King James, they all say the word debts. You can even go to the Geneva Bible. You can even go to the Latin And guess what? It's always the word debts. Where do we get this idea, though, that the word trespasses is in the Lord's Prayer? Well, look down at Matthew chapter 6. The word for trespass does appear in Matthew 6 verse 14. And the reason why we have often said, forgive us our trespasses and those who trespass against us, the reason we say that is because hundreds of years ago in the Book of Common Prayer produced by the Church of England, they pulled the word trespass out of the verse 14, and put it in the Lord's Prayer. Now, you can also compare this word to Luke 11, where we get another translation and another rendition of the Lord's Prayer. This is Luke 11, verses 1 through 5. And in there, it's going to blow your mind a little bit, but Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. So which is it? Some of you have been asking me, is it debts, is it trespasses, or is it sins? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, the Greek word right there is the word for debts. And we forgive those who are indebted to us. It's the same word that Luke uses. But Luke throws us a curveball, and he uses the word sins also. And then, if you come from something like the Episcopalian Church or the Methodist Church, if you are tied at all to the Book of Common Prayer, you'll remember that it's trespasses. So, which is it? Well, here's the good news. Sin is a trespass, sin is a sin, and sin is a debt. (laughs) So those are all valid things to say. These are not necessarily in competition with each other. So don't let it bother you too much. But the reason why we say debts and debtors, one is because that's what it's translated as, and you can go back to the Greek, it is the word debts. But the reason I am so committed to saying debts and debtors is because I think it gets to the very heart of why forgiveness is so hard and why the cross is so costly to Jesus. Because when you really consider the call that you and I are to forgive those who are our debtors, we recognize that when people wrong us, it's like they've taken something from us. Uh, You know, the problem with with saying just to trespass, like if I trespass on your property by accident, as soon as I get off your property, no blood, no fowl. But what if I go onto your property and, you know, run over your mailbox? Now I'm in your debt because guess what? What has to happen to the mailbox? Either I have to pay to put it back up or you can forgive me, but you still have to pay either with your time or money or a new mailbox to put the mailbox up. So friends, what I want to suggest to you is that a truly Christian understanding of sin is to understand that sin actually is a debt. Jesus goes on and uses this same thing in a famous parable. But what I want you to do is look down at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 for just a second. Uh, I'm suggesting to you that sin is a sin, so Luke is right. Sin is also a trespass, so Matthew 6, 14 is right, because we do need to be forgiven our trespasses. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, the real word there is debts. Because when we sin, we are indebted to those that we have wronged. We owe them something, you could say. And when people sin against us, we feel like they what? They owe us. The pound of flesh, right? But notice how Christianity comes along and addresses the topic of forgiveness. Jesus teaches in the most profound statement ever on prayer... That you and I daily pray, forgive us our debts, Father, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, I want you to step back and just notice something about uh, our world today, uh, and that is forgiveness is no longer seen as a virtue. When I'm talking about forgiveness, I am pushing against everything in modern day culture, Uh, Everything that you read about in the news, all of the subtext that you hear, everything that I'm saying about forgiveness is going to sound not just inadequate, but it's going to sound morally wrong to you. Uh, I'll give you some examples of why I believe that forgiveness is no longer seen as a virtue in today's world. Uh, I'm not just pointing this out. Uh, You could go to things like uh, Mere Christianity, uh, written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, He makes this very same point that you and I, we do not live in a world where forgiveness is anything like a virtue. In fact, on his chapter on forgiveness in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. As we had during the war. What war is he talking about? World War II. And then to mention this subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. It is not that people think that forgiveness is too high and difficult a virtue, it is that they think it is hateful and contemptible. This is C.S. Lewis writing I think in the 1950s at this time, and our world has only catapulted us more and more into a society where forgiveness is no longer a virtue, it's actually re-victimizing people who are oppressed and abused, and it's empowering abusers. I'll give you an example of that. You know, you could look in uh, all kind of cases. Uh, Famously, a few years ago, Rachel Denhollander, the famous Olympic gymnast who was uh, abused by Larry Nassar, she came forward and held him to account. And does anyone know how many women came forward in that gymnastics abuse case? Hundreds, hundreds of teenage girls were abused. We can think of cases of abuse in the church. We can think of our own families. Even our own families hurt us. I mean, it's been said, who hurts you like your family but the problem that you and I have is we don't see forgiveness as a virtue. We see it as enabling the abuser. I'll give you an example of this, another one. Um, you know, several years ago, I don't know, several, six or seven years ago, uh, Dylan Roof, the white supremacist, he went into a black church, the Emanuel American, uh, African-American Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he shot up a Bible study, I believe, on a Wednesday night. You remember this case? Famously, what did those church members do? Anybody know? They forgave him you know why? Because they were Christians. And the backlash against that church of Christians forgiving this man was swift, and it was comprehensive. Uh, Just a quick Google search, you can read countless articles. Was it right for that church to forgive that man who murdered them? Uh, One article published by the Carol News entitled, Black Forgiveness is Not for White People, (laughs) says it pretty clearly, doesn't it? Uh, The managing editor of the paper wrote this, forgiveness breeds forgetting as the old adage goes. You can think about the Me Too movement where uh, thousands of women have been abused and they've been wondering, is it right to forgive? Should they forgive their abusers? Well, that very question was brought up in the New York Times. Uh, Several years ago, Danielle Barron wrote an article, an op-ed, entitled, Guess What? Should We Forgive the Men Who Assaulted Us? And at the very end, she says, I'm not ready to forgive him. Friends, you and I live in a world where forgiveness is not a virtue. It's seen as empowering the wrong kind of people and re-victimizing the victims. So what are we supposed to do then with all of the wounds that we carry and all of the hurts? Well, the world offers a couple of options. Uh, I'll give you two basic options, right, that the world will, will suggest. And you can read about, you can, you can see these in the articles I'm referencing. They'll give you sort of what they think a path of forgiveness or atonement could look like. But they're deeply inadequate because they ignore the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first possible option that the world could offer you uh, is something like Conditional forgiveness. Conditional forgiveness. So, uh, you know, in this article, Should We Forgive the Men Who Assaulted Us, Danielle Barron says uh, basically that maybe if he really repents, and maybe if he really does the hard duty, and maybe if he really does step down enough, and maybe if he goes through all of the pain, maybe then I will grant him repentance. Uh, Martha Neusbaum, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, she's written a lot on this idea about conditional forgiveness, And basically, what's at the heart of this conditional forgiveness, she says, is that at the core, what is really required for forgiveness is enough weeping, imploring, and apologizing, typically involving considerable self-abasement. What Dr. Nussbaum is saying is basically the world will say, well, I'll forgive if you grovel to the fullest extent that I want you to. Maybe then I will give you forgiveness. Uh, Anyone ever heard of the phrase running the gauntlet? You may remember what the, you ever heard that phrase, you run the gauntlet? You know what the gauntlet was? The gauntlet was a military way of punishing wrongdoers. And what they would do is they'd make two rows of people and they'd have either whips or, you know, clubs, and somebody would have to run through it who had done something wrong, and everybody got to get their pound of flesh, and maybe the guy survived and maybe he didn't. And what I want to suggest to you is that this is very similar to what conditional forgiveness looks like. Well, if you run through the gauntlet, and you grovel at my feet enough, and you apologize enough, and you self-abase yourself enough, maybe then I can grant repentance. But Christian, is that, is that how God forgives you? You know, another worldly option that we are given is this idea of um, what uh, Tim Keller calls therapeutic forgiveness. Which is, we forgive people, and we, you know, we don't do it, I don't want you to debase yourself, but I'll forgive so long as it makes me, you know, happy, or it allows me to kind of move on with my life. And there's sort of a half-truth to that, because forgiveness is good for us. It does help us move on. But for the world, the forgiveness is really all about the person. There's no regard for the offender. Right? So you could say, at best, it's a selfish reason to forgive. Or let me flip it around this way. Christian, why do you forgive? Do you forgive only so far as they abase themselves in front of you and they grovel? Do you forgive only once you've had your pound of flesh taken out of the person? Do you forgive only because it's going to help your mental health? Friends, you and I forgive... And it is good for your mental health. And it is good for someone to repent. But you and I forgive for a completely different reason. You and I forgive because profoundly, Jesus Christ took the punishment of all of our sins. And you and I have never groveled enough before our sin. You think you've repented enough for everything you've ever done? No. No repentance is adequate before a holy God. And yet, while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we forgive not to watch someone grovel at our feet, and we forgive not just because it helps us move on with our life, which it does. We forgive because profoundly we have been forgiven. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. And let's pause for a second. When I read these words, am I giving you life advice or am I speaking on behalf of God himself? Good question, isn't it? Matthew 6:14, the words of Jesus Christ, "For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." Matthew 6, verse 12, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Flip over to the gospel of Mark for just a second. It's page 1008 in your Bible. This is Mark chapter 11, page 1008 in your Bible. Mark 11, verse 24 through 25. Page 1008. Mark 11, 24 through 25. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, do what? Forgive. If you have anything against anybody so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Christian, why do you and I forgive? Because we have been forgiven. Jesus says in Mark 11, if you find yourself at church and you are standing and you are praying and you realize that you have something against somebody, his first step, the first step of a Christian is to do what? Forgive. Forgive. So that your heavenly Father will forgive you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 for just a second. Why does Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts? Uh, You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think I said that correctly, uh, was a man who had experienced deep, deep injustice in this world. And he's talking about why is it that you and I, we need to be forgiven. And he says, he says these famous words. He wrote, If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us good people. We could destroy them. <laughs> but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Christian, to be a Christ follower is to recognize that we have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are infinitely in debt to God. You know, you know, you know why our, all of our sin goes to the top? You know why when David murders and commits adultery. He says, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. He doesn't mean that he hasn't sinned against other people. His point is that all sin ultimately rises to the top. And you know why? Because when you and I sin against other people, who do those people ultimately belong to? They ultimately belong to the Lord. Uh, If somebody came up to me and, you know, I don't know, punched my kid in the face, I would be rightly angry, right? And they would need not to just apologize to my kid, but to me because it's my kid. How much more when you and I sin against God's own images all around us, is God offended? You see, all sin is ultimately a rejection of God. And now think back through your whole course of your life. All of the gossip you have committed, all of the lust, all of the anger, all of the half-truths, all of the sins that you and I have committed. How are you going to pay that back, friend? I mean, really, if you you think you can pay that back, uh, you haven't heard the teaching of Jesus. Because in in Jesus' famous parable about forgiveness, he says, imagine there's a king and a man comes to him and he's got 10 bazillion dollars of debt. And the man goes before the king, and he gets on his knees, and he says, I can't pay. Will you please forgive me? What does the man do? What does the king do? He forgives everything. But then the forgiven man goes out, and he goes to his neighbor, who owes him like $50, and says, pay me right now. And his neighbor says, well, I can't. I can't pay you right now. And this forgiven man does what? Throws the other man in prison. Isn't that fascinating? One of Jesus' most famous parables of forgiveness is actually someone who claims to be forgiven, experiences forgiveness, can somehow not forgive those around him. When the king hears about it, guess what he does to the other guy? Well, you'll have to read the parable to find out. But it's not good. You see, to be a Christian means that you and I repent, that you and I really believe that our record of debt, all of the sins that you and I have ever committed, is worse than we think. If you've been here around long enough, you'll probably have heard me quote Jack Miller, which is, the gospel is two simple messages. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. (laughs) But cheer up, you are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than you dare imagine. Uh, Friends, your record of debt, my record of debt, is longer than we could ever imagine. And yet, God took the punishment that you and I deserve on himself. Justice demands that a pound of flesh be taken. I get that, and so do you. But the amazing thing about the God of Christianity, the only true God, is that God said, I will take the punishment, not you. Someone's got to replace the mailbox that makes sense? Now, think about it this way. Uh, you know, the reason that atonement needs to happen, um, okay, so let's, I'll use a silly example. Let's say I steal your cup of coffee one morning, okay, and it ruins your morning, okay? So what needs to happen for, you know, re- reconciliation? What needs to happen? I probably need to buy you a cup of coffee. Is that gonna, is it like one cup of coffee enough? Somebody already said it. Somebody said, I, I deserve two. <laughs> All right, well, if I bought you two cups of coffee, is that really gonna solve the problem? What are you gonna do a week later when you buy a similar cup of coffee and you look at it and you're gonna think, Dustin stole a cup of coffee just like this. (laughs) You're gonna think about it over and over again. But you know what forgiveness says? Forgiveness says you clear the debt, which means I don't bring it up with you anymore. And I don't bring it up with other people. I don't find passive aggressive ways, like, well you better watch your coffee, Dustin's coming. You know, he stole mine. I mean, he bought me two cups of coffee, but he stole it. (laughs) The third thing that forgiveness means, and this is the hardest, forgiveness means you don't replay the situation to yourself. Forgiveness means you don't bring it up with the person, you don't bring it up to others, and you don't bring it up to yourself. You know, when someone asks Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Jesus gives like the number for infinity. He says, says like seven times? And Jesus says 77 times or 700, seven thousand, seven thousand 7000 times. His point is he's saying forgiveness is often a process because when with a wave of memory comes back on us, when we remember Dustin stole my cup of coffee, we have to choose in that moment, am I gonna tell myself this? Am I gonna mention this to others? Am I gonna bring it up over their head again? But forgiveness does what? forgives all those things. And the reason you and I do that is because God has done that to us. Does God keep rehashing to himself all of your sins? Does God hang your sins over your head constantly? Does God tell other people about all the awful things you and I have done? No. Because he nailed our record of debt to the cross. And I bear it no more. You know, how is it that you and I are capable of forgiving. It's because we know that God took the punishment that we deserve. You know, um, this is this is at the heart of the gospel, right? This is the heart of the Christian message. Let me give you maybe a, a simpler example. Um, we, you know, what is God doing on the cross? Is God punishing a third party? Um, is, you know, is, so there's God the Father. He's angry against sin, and so a third party whoop pops in the middle. Is that what's happening in the cross? You know. Well, there is someone standing in the gap, but what's amazing about the message of Christianity is God himself was reconciling the world to himself. So yes, God the Son, sent by God the Father, took the punishment of our sin, but really it's all God. Uh, This is a a profoundly important point in understanding the Trinity, and it's a point that actually Rachel Denhollander showed me. Uh, Rachel Denhollander, that gymnast, you may not know this, she's a Christian. She's an evangelical Christian, and her husband is a Ph.D. student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I have right here uh, an article, an academic journal that they wrote together. It was published at the Evangelical Theological Society, which is the preeminent Evangelical Theological Society. (laughs) called Justice the Foundation of Christian Approaches to Abuse, and Rachel and her husband co-wrote this article about how the penal substitution of Jesus Christ gives the hope of forgiveness to abusers, but also how to hold them to justice. Pretty fascinating article by Rachel Denhollander and her husband. In this, she says, the fact that God takes on the punishment himself, not foisting it onto a third party, entwines vicarious punishment and forgiveness together. She gives an example. A banker cannot be said to have forgiven a loan when a third party pays the loan on behalf of another. However, when the banker himself pays the loan on behalf of another, then there is satisfaction and the forgiveness of the debt. I could keep going, but it's an academic article, and I know it's a little heady. But what Rachel Denhollander is saying is that Jesus Christ... Himself on the cross took the punishment that all of our sins deserve. Uh, God did not throw some random person in there. God became a man and took the punishment of all of our sins. And forgiveness, friends, here's the thing. For, this is why Islam misunderstands atonement. This is why other religions misunderstand atonement. Because they think atonement, forgiveness of sins, it can just happen like that. But, friends, that has never happened in the history of the world. Forgiveness always has a price tag someone has to pay. I'll give you that silly example. Imagine I drove into your house, and I drove over your mailbox. There are only two things that can happen. One, I can pay out of my own pocket and apologize and pay for a new mailbox, or what? You can pay for the new mailbox, or You can pay the price of forgiving me. And every time you drive past your mailbox, you say, I have forgiven him and his bad driving. I have forgiven him. But that comes at quite the cost to yourself, doesn't it? You see, when Jesus took the punishment of our sin on the cross, somebody had to pay the price. Someone had to pay the debt. But instead of punishing you, God said, I will take the punishment. I will do the costly work of forgiveness. I will forgive. You see, friends, there is no, all of these articles, what the world says about forgiveness, fundamentally what they misunderstand is they think we have to choose between forgiveness and justice. Every article, that is the unspoken presumption, either I forgive this guy or I hold him accountable. But friends, God's justice and his mercy, they meet at the cross. God holds sin accountable. He punishes wrong. He pays the debt. And also, amazingly like that, all of God's mercy and forgiveness flows from the cross. Christian, you and I do not choose between forgiveness and justice. They meet at the cross. If that doesn't make sense to you, I'd encourage you to learn from Rachel Denhollander and her husband. There's a whole article. You can find it on Google right now explaining how that works. So let me just recap for just a second where we've been. Forgiveness is not seen as a virtue today. But as Christians, we don't just choose between forgiveness or justice. We hold both of those things true because they meet at the cross. They meet at the cross. How does God treat us? Have you groveled enough? If you think you have, I don't think you've known the extent of your sin. (laughs) But God moves towards us with kindness, and his kindness leads us to repentance. God has removed our debt of sin. So if you are a Christian this morning and you have known God's forgiveness, you have confessed your sin, your inability to pay the debt ever, instantly you become a person That looks at other people differently. Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You know, why does Jesus teach us to pray every morning, forgive us our debts? If you say, well, I believe in Jesus. All my sins are forgiven. Why am I supposed to pray every morning, forgive us our debts? Well, I think it's because, yes, we are justified. We are right with God by faith in him, but you and I, we still sin. We still need forgiveness from those small sins. And also, I think the reason you and I are taught to pray this every day is actually because it becomes the power to forgive those around us. Why did that church in Charleston forgive that man? Was it because he groveled enough? As far as we know, he never has. They forgave him because they were forgiven people. And they still held him accountable. For the murders that he did. The Christian perception is not choosing between forgiveness and justice, but the way and the reason we pursue justice becomes radically different. So, what does it mean for us then? to forgive those around us. You're probably already thinking about somebody who has really, really wronged you, uh, and you may be thinking they don't deserve forgiveness, or this person isn't safe to go to. So how can I help you, uh, you know, as best I can to work towards forgiving those around you? Uh, Well, notice verse 12. It seems as a command. I don't know how else to put it. You are commanded to forgive, Christian. Look at verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, You know, St. Augustine famously said, this is the terrible prayer. (laughs) And the reason he called it the terrible prayer is because he was saying that when we say, as we have forgiven, we're saying, God, use the amount and the measure of forgiveness I extend to forgive my sins. (laughs) However much I forgive other people, God, I give you the right to use that measure on me, (laughs) right? That's why it's a scary prayer. So if we want God to forgive all of our sins, Augustine would say, we have to forgive all the people for their sins, right? With the measure you use, it will be used against you, is what Jesus is going to go on to say. But how is it that you and I forgive those who have wronged us? Uh, First thing, there's a wonderful book on forgiveness. I'd encourage anybody to read it. Um, It's called Forgive. It's written by Tim Keller. And in this book about forgiveness, he says something so profound, which is forgiveness is granted before it's felt. I think we, we wait till we feel positively about a person and then maybe we extend some kind of conditional forgiveness, but we grant forgiveness before we feel it. And what is forgiveness? Well, it's that simple rule, right? It's, I release them. I'm not going to, you know, hold this over their head. I'm not going to hold this over their head by telling other people about how terrible they are and I'm not going to dwell on it myself, I'm going to let it go. That's really what the Greek word forgiveness means. It means to release, to let it go. But you may be thinking, well, what about people who don't repent? What about bad people? What are we supposed to do? Well, you'll know that Jesus says later on in the Gospel of Matthew that if someone wrongs you, what are you supposed to do? If a brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Are, are we just supposed to let bad people go? Are we not supposed to put people in prison? Are we not supposed to punish the wicked? No. We, we do hold people accountable. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, right, there's a process of trying to restore the relationship. So Jesus is not saying that forgiveness means you let it go. Uh, I think probably the uh, the greatest example of this uh, that I can think of is uh, actually something that Rachel Denhollander did. Uh, a few years ago, she, she held... Um, you know, a courtroom hearing with Larry Nasser where she testified against him. And listen to what Rachel said in court. I mean, it's so profound, right? She said to her abuser, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. Sounds like she's saying, I want you to have that pound of flesh, right? But remember, she is a Christian. Why does she want him to experience guilt? and what she says. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than you need forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Christian, we forgive because we have been forgiven. We hold people accountable, not because it's just good for our mental health, not just because we want to see them grovel at our feet, not because we want to see them suffer. Christian, we hold people accountable so that they will feel the soul-crushing weight of guilt and go before God and repent and be saved. Do you see how radically different of a hope that is than anything the world has to offer? In the Christian understanding of forgiveness, the offender himself is considered, or herself, as someone in need of God's grace. Christians can go to someone like Dylan Roof and say, I forgive you, and you're going to jail and I'm going to testify against you, but not because I want to see you bleed out in front of me so that one day you will know what true repentance looks like. Why does God show us kindness? Romans 2 says, God's kindness is what? Meant to lead us to repentance. So Christian, hear me. We do not give up on justice. At the cross, at the very heart of the Christian message, God is punishing evil. We hold people accountable as Christians. We hold pastors. We hold abusers. We hold offenders. We hold anyone accountable, but for radically different reasons than the world. We hold them accountable so that one day they would be broken by their sin. You know, uh, I have finished up my time, but, you know, it's fascinating reading uh, from these women because uh, the lady writing the New York Times, she's not coming from a Christian perspective, but at the end of it, she says... Her, you know what she really wants? You know, she says, I can't forgive him because he hasn't, you know, um, you know apologized enough. And, but she says, at the end, she actually shows what she really wants out of him. She says, genuine repentance is what she's after. You know, he had called and made some sort of lame apology or something. Didn't really fess up to it. So she says, what I really want is genuine repentance, which requires a combination of accountability and sensitivity selflessness, and self-awareness. Men like my abuser would do well to remember that a true apology would not make excuses or justify bad behavior, but would take full responsibility for what went wrong. Do you hear what she's crying out for? She's saying, I wish this wretched man would actually repent. (laughs) But how does someone actually come to repentance? How does someone actually say, I was wrong on everything. Have mercy on me. What these women are crying for is re- genuine repentance. Friends, the way that you and I get genuine repentance is from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what my sin was worth. It was worth more than I ever thought it was. And Lord, I am so sorry. Remember the story of little Zacchaeus, the wee little man when he became a Christian, right, when all of his sin was forgiven, what does he do the next day? He goes and makes restitution. He pays back four times what he owed. Because the Christian message is not just that we forgive and sweep everything under the rug, it's that forgiveness breeds a whole new world where reconciliation can take place. Friends, there's more I could go into. I haven't spoken to every one of your situations. I know you carry wounds, but Christian, I hope you hear the words of Jesus this morning that the first step is forgiveness. If you don't know what to do in the next step, if you don't know how to hold somebody accountable, come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders. Uh, but holding people accountable, whether it's in the civil courts or it's in the church or it's in your family, your first step is to forgive. And I promise you, if you forgive them, you will hold them accountable for very different reasons in very different ways. We need to pray. Father, I thank you that you have forgiven me of all of my sins. Lord, I have more sins than I know. I commit more sins than I could ever possibly confess. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And forgive me. Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning that has not confessed their sin, Lord, would they have the conviction right now to confess their sin and look to you for forgiveness? To go to those to whom they have wronged and to begin to make restitution. Lord, for those of us who have men and women coming to mind that we have not forgiven, Lord, would we forgive right now as we pray? Holy Spirit, would you help us not to bring it up over and over to ourselves and to others? Lord, help us not to hang it over their head. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would we release it? Father, I pray that if our offenders need to be held accountable in the civil courts, if they need to be held accountable personally to us, Lord, we ask for your kindness and courage Lord, that we would help them get out of the vice of sin, and Lord, we hold them accountable for very different reasons, in very different ways. Lord, we thank you that you have forgiven us. Lord, would our forgiveness of others and our love for them be modeled after your love for us? Lord, we thank you that we have not uh, held you have not held our sin over our head, but you nailed it to the cross. Lord, I ask lastly that we would show your love to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.